Hey there, family. Thanks for checking out the podcast. I just want to give you a quick update for the summer of 2023. We're still going through real-life theology. We're going to be talking about Christian convictions, discerning the essential, the important, and the personal, as well as kingdom living, what it looks like to live out love and holiness and make the kingdom tangible. But we're doing all of that primarily meeting through house churches. So these sermons may be a little shorter. They may be a little more interactive. Either way, I hope you enjoy them. Don't forget to rate this podcast, leave a comment, and share it with your friends. God bless. Well, a little bit of review, and uh, also kind of, uh, I, I was telling Jesse, you hold me accountable, so next Sunday I'll be leaning more into discussion. So this should be like the last sermon I preach about the kingdom and kingdom living. That's been the theme that we've been under Today I want to talk about how does the church express love to the world. The more we talk about kingdom or mission or community or Jesus, we just keep talking about love. And how is it expressed to the world? Last time we, we talked a lot about uh, the greatest commandment and that we shouldn't be pickers and choosers and, well, I, I love God or, well, I just love people. But we got to combine both of them to have a holistic gospel, Right. And the answer of how does the church express love to the world is by letting love reign over all you do, as the kingdom should reign over all you do, as Jesus should reign over all that we do. There's a verse, Galatians 6.10, that says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. And that's a great verse. Quick story, years ago in our fellowship, I've, I've heard this story often. Um, two guys in the campus movement, Scott Green, who went on to plant a Seattle and Hong Kong in our movement, and Doug Arthur, who went on to lead Boston and plant London. So big church leaders, but back when they were just goofy campus guys leading in a dorm, uh, one of them said, no, it's about loving God's people in the church first and the people right in this room. That's what we need to prioritize. And he referenced something like Galatians 6.10. And then I think Doug Arthur leaned the other way and said, no, it's, um, it's uh, Luke 19.10. It's Jesus coming to seek and save the lost, and we should prioritize them first. And uh, a- a- as you begin to hear those two, you probably think to yourself exactly what we talked about last Sunday of por qué no las dos, you know? Why not both, and why not both and holistically? So sometimes... In the church, we might talk a lot about evangelism. And I actually think we don't talk about evangelism too much. We just might talk about other things not enough, like taking care of one another and loving the family of believers right here. So that's my disclaimer to start, that we want to be holistic and love everybody and not be pickers and choosers when it comes to, well, who should I love first and who should I love second? Because today we are talking about how we express our love to the world, whereas last Sunday we focused more on a general love and even a love for one another. But you're going to see it all overlapping today in a beautiful way. I've got one illustration, then two points and two verses, and then a bunch of ideas to put on top of that to conclude. So, everyone with me? Yes. We're talking about love and how we express it to the world. 
Other point of review, we just defined love last Sunday as cross-shaped actions that benefit others. It's self-sacrificial, and that displays the kingdom of God. Not just the love of feeling, right? I'm excited for Jesse to preach more on that in a couple of weeks. You know, when we gather right here and talk about the kingdom of God, God meant this church, this group of people, to teach the world what the kingdom of God looks like. To plant a a new way of living, a new way of being human, really a vision of a new world right in the midst, midst of this old creation, to see what a new creation could look like. So the answer to, well, how does God bring new creation and renewal and healing, and the answer is you. So then we might get intimidated because that is such a big picture. We might not even make that very tangible when we speak of the kingdom in these broad terms Um, of being fully human, of restoring all things. So to boil down that theology and to boil it down to you, You could simply ask, how do you posture yourself after Jesus? Because Jesus had all that theology running around in his head, and he did very specific actions as he walked about, and he's our best example. So what are the postures and purposes of Jesus? When you immerse yourself in him and ask, what does that mean to you? That Jesus lived this way, walked this way, now how can I walk this way today? That's going to be the best way to immerse yourself in kingdom life. A few Sundays ago, we talked about the kingdom in the church. And before Jesus talked about the church, he said, who do you say I am? Posture yourself after me and some church expression is probably going to emerge and people are probably going to see the kingdom. So before you think of a building or seeing a building, who do you say I am? Now we act, so now we got to get in the word to see who Jesus is. Amen, guys? And when we do that, posturing ourselves after Jesus, the thing that comes alongside that is the nonverbals. Because people often see our posture before they're going to hear our words. They're going to see our posture of the gospel. And for a lot of people today, they're going to have to experience the gospel through us and see the gospel before they're ever willing to hear us talk about the gospel. They're going to have to see this Jesus posturing, the nonverbals. It's letting people know that they're loved, right? And how much God loves them. And how much he desperately wants to show them how much they're loved through the people right here in this room. It's the unspoken message. So when we lean into that gospel and that posturing of Jesus and who do you say I am, the gospel creates a people who are sent on mission because we got to tell other people about that love. You know, we're not going to bottle it up and hide it under a bush. Oh, no. (laughs) We're going to show them the kingdom. We're going to be the light of the world. Amen, guys? That's taking it from this room and letting the kingdom being manifest in all of our life. And and so that no part of our life is going to lack the gospel. It's not going to be compartmentalized. It's not going to be just on Sunday morning or during your quiet time. But you're going to be gospeling people throughout your walk 
every day, letting love reign. That's showing people what love is. But here's the astonishing fact, and here's my big illustration I'm leading up to. People are self-centered rather than loving and rather than self-sacrificial. To give an example, um, I won't use their names, but kids can be self-centered. <laughs> and we love them dearly. We choose to love them even though they are self-centered. And when you engage with self-centered people, you will have to choose to love them as well. <laughs> but let me tell you a little bit about self-centeredness. <laughs> Um, we start out very selfish in life. Sometimes we forget that because infants are adorable. But they also want you to conform to their preset schedule. Even though you got here first, they show up and they say, no, align with me, my agenda. They want to impose their meal times on you, their nap times, their bedtimes. <laughs> they want to have rain in your life. <laughs> they come with their own built-in alarm clock system that usually goes off like right after I go to bed and usually wakes up the whole house just after I've fallen asleep. And kind of like cats and dogs, instead of seeing you as somebody who loves me and feeds me and nurtures me so you must be my parent, uh, I think more often than not it's you're somebody who loves me and feeds me and nurtures me. You must be my slave. <laughs> you must be here to serve me, more, more the cat, right? <laughs> You're here to put me down, pick me up, keep me entertained, pick out clothing, wipe my nose, comfort my afflictions, pick up my toys, fill my stomach, and change my diapers. That is your existence. And then they hit school age, and it doesn't change. And we, be, we can begin to remember these years for ourselves in the school age. It morphs into uh, now parents are the, the chauffeur and the philanthropist. I remember my dad telling me that once, picking me up. I feel like I'm just your taxi driver going to and from pra pa practice. And he existed just to take me where I wanted to go and get me what I wanted on the menu and enroll me in the activities I wanted to do and fix my favorite foods. And at the same time, <laughs> give me what I, you know, my favorite foods, but at the same time, keep me from getting sick not fix my least favorite foods, um, buy me a bunch of plastic toys and then buy me more flashing toys and then get me a laptop and a smartphone and all these things I want in life and then the car. And that was kind of the function in those years. And, and then I was, in those years, I expected my parents to know when I wanted them in my life, like, Dad, you're supposed to pick me up and to know, Dad, you're supposed to drop me off two blocks away from the dance tonight, you know? I don't want people to see you dropping me off in this car. So parents are kind of expected to be all-knowing at that stage. So at home, you hear phrases like, let me sleep, and at the same time, why didn't you wake me up? Stay out of my life, and at the same time, can I borrow the keys? Look at me, I'm the best when they're winning, and at the same time, this isn't fair, it's a stupid game, when they're losing. And you say, I've never played Wingspan before, or whatever the excuse is. Discomp. Disc yeah, that was me yesterday. Very humbling. <laughs> Good mention, Chris. Discomp. You'll hear things like, I saw it first, it's mine, it's my turn, it's my toy, it's my game, it's my room, it's my life, followed by, it's his turn to do the dishes, it's his problem, it's his responsibility, it's his fault. So kids can be astonishingly self-centered. And it's a good thing that they're cute. And it's a good thing that we choose to love them. But here's the real astonishing thing. 
we don't really grow out of that. And we like to think we aren't like those kids or that we've come to some place of maturity. But when you think of your coworkers, your family members, or even some church members, you might think, you know, sometimes they're a lot like those kids that Joey just described. And the truth is sometimes us as family members and as coworkers and as church members can be a lot like those kids I just described. I know I can be. You can ask my wife later if there are times when I am like that description. I was telling Chris in our study yesterday, we were in the, the heading up of Ephesians 4, where it says, um, bear with one another in love or endure one another in love. And I was like, yeah, Chris, if you can endure me, you can be restored. So, you know, count that cost. <laughs> but there will be times when it's tough to love me and I'm not as cute as my kids. And the Bible calls us to endure one another in love. And then later in that chapter, it says, build up one another in love and speak the truth to one another in love. And it enables us to have unity and maturity in the body. When we posture ourselves as Jesus, when we love and serve one another, the byproduct is growing others into Christ and showing each other Christ. And those are going to be my two points and two verses we're going to touch on. When we choose not to be self-centered as kids can be. We never really grow out of it. So, mommy, I'm hungry becomes, man, this waiter is really taking a lot of time. <laughs> and it manifests that way. Look at my new shoes becomes, check out my new car. My parents just don't understand me becomes, my boss just doesn't appreciate me. It's his turn to mow becomes, oh great, the baby's crying again. I'll just pretend to be asleep and she'll get up and she'll take care of it. Some of you will know what that's like very soon. How come the teacher always picks her becomes, well, how come she got the promotion? Well, how come they got to lead worship this Sunday? We think this way over and over again. It's my life, mother, becomes it's my life, God. Self-centeredness doesn't go away with age and sometimes it just gets uglier when we say to God, my money, I'll use it for me. My talents, I'll use them for me. My time, I'll use it for me. My friends, I'll use them for me. My family, my job, my internet, my thoughts, all for me. And it's a good thing that God thinks all of us are cute and adorable and choose, chose to love us first. Amen, guys? We got to realize it's not about me and my life. So if you're feeling convicted, that's all the bad news, but we are self-centered. And now let's talk about the good news. Hopefully you're realizing we need the Jesus, right guys? We need to posture after him. Let's talk about the Jesus in John 13. There's our problem. Let's talk about the solution. And I'll go ahead and ask a couple of volunteers to read. So John chapter 13, please turn over there. Jesus is about to school everybody here. They all think that, hey, we've been at this ministry with Jesus for a couple of years. We've got it figured out. But he comes on the scene. It's like LeBron James walking into a middle school basketball game. And they're like, man, he's about to show us how it's done. So here's Jesus knowing exactly how it's done. He's going to school them. He's going to teach them. Can I get somebody to read John 13 verses 1 through 5? So we can learn a lot from this. When you're beginning to feel like, you know, everyone else in the church is selfish, or my roommate is being selfish, or my coworker, 
or all these people are just burning me out and I feel like I'm serving them or I'm doing a lot. They all never say thank you. They don't clean up the kitchen. Their dog looked at my dog funny. We have these feelings, right? <laughs> we have to serve them as Jesus did here. A cross-shaped action that benefits others. So reason number one for why does Jesus serve us and why should we serve others? Reason number one, to grow us. He taught them. He gave them this example of what loving one another means by putting a towel around his waist. And they learned a lot and they grew a lot from that experience so that they could go and serve others. You don't have to turn there, but consider... You know what? We will turn there. Philippians 2. And uh, Roy, could you read verses 5 through 10? Of Philippians 2. Yeah, verses 5. It's crazy. The, the master of servants, our Lord, became a servant and was exalted to the name above all names. He lived and died as a servant. And at the same time, through that, becomes our master. It's crazy when you think about it and you combine both of those things. So what does that make us? And if you want to turn back to John 13, then amen. But I'll, I'll go ahead and just read. You fast forward to John 13, verses 12 through 17. And at the end there, he says, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. So the way that we can grow up out of our self-centeredness is to follow Jesus our Lord and take up the towel and serve people as Jesus served us to grow us. So when you're tired because Sister Waterface isn't as mature as you are, serve her in order to grow her. Serve her in order to grow her. When coworker dude doesn't work as hard as you, serve him to grow him. When you feel like you've hit a spiritual wall or that you don't need to grow yourself, who are you serving? <laughs> and if you aren't, then I think you have some room to grow. John 13 also tells us by our love for one another, everyone will recognize the disciple of Jesus by the way that they show love. I think Jesus' disciples grew more and learned more through this experience on how to love and how to grow up out of their own self-centeredness than anything else. Reason number two. Jesus wasn't only interested in our personal, professional development and growth on the workforce or our love for one another in growing each other as the body of believers. Reason number two for why Jesus served us and we should serve others Jesus wanted to show us with a tangible example. So when you posture yourself after Jesus, you got to ask yourself, why did Jesus get on the floor and wash the mud off of your feet? And more than that, why did he get up on the cross and wash the sin out of your soul? For what purpose? And what is he trying to show you? And how does he want you to also exemplify that to others? I loved, we're thinking of a 
crazy kingdom ideas and how we can manifest the kingdom of God as a church. And Megan said, we could all skydive and write, there's God in the clouds, right? We could write God in the clouds. <laughs> That's a crazy idea. And Jesus could have done that back in the day. He could have written, Jesus loves you above Jerusalem in the clouds as a, a visible manifestation of the kingdom for all to see. But he wanted to show us how much he loves us in another way by serving us and not just writing it up in the clouds or dropping a bunch of letters on people or broadcasting it into everyone's brain all at once. Here's why we serve others. When you take your place beside your Lord, washing the feet of forgotten people, written off people, you grow in your love and you show them love and you show them Jesus. And that's precisely what Jesus is aching for. Yes, Galatians 6.10, taking care of the family of believers. Jesus is aching for that. And that we take care of each other in this room. And yes, seeking and saving the lost. He loves them so badly and he wants to show them so badly through you just how much they are loved. Especially when they don't know it yet. And they're not ready to hear it yet because they need to be shown first. I grew up, I grew up hearing from my mom that she loved me a lot, but she wasn't around and chose not to be around in life. And sometimes that still hits me when people choose not to be around in life or choose to fall away from the faith or choose to um, even remain in the church but hurt the family of believers. And when you're in a family, people will hurt you sometimes. But when I became a disciple, I had to learn how to forgive my mom, say, Mom, I love you and choose to love you. And in the family of believers, we need to choose to keep loving each other as well and showing each other love. I'm so excited for Chris being restored today and showing him love. It's going to be awesome because that is what Jesus is aching for to celebrate exactly that. Here's a quote from the Renew Network. When the church lets Jesus' love rule, we become a haven for the brokenhearted, a sanctuary for the oppressed, and a refuge for the weary. Why? Because everyone, truly everyone, is searching for the love that the church has to share. We display love when we let love rule our lives. All right, everyone with me? That's Jesus. We got one more verse. I'm getting into my conclusion. I also have a lot of practical ideas and a lot of theological ideas, but I think I can fit them all within five to ten minutes. So here we go. All right, one thing we often talk about, I've talked about it in a sermon, we talk about it in our Disciple Makers Pathway, is blessing others. And this is all just... You're going to hear me mention love like 30 times in the, next, in the next five to 10 minutes. But sometimes loving looks like blessing. Sometimes loving looks like the mission of God. And so I'm going to keep going around and around and around to say, love people in this way, love people in this way. Or maybe here's another way that works better for you so that we can have more tangibles. So blessing. And as we preached on before, in the Jewish mind, it meant the life of God flowing tangibly onto his 
people. It's mentioned over 500 times in the Bible to a Jewish person who was perceived as being given in this present life, not just for heaven someday, but a daily thing to show others the tangible life of God flowing into every part of every day all around the city. So if you think, yes, love others, well, what does it mean to bless others as the tangible life of God? Here and now, that'll manifest the kingdom. We talk about in the pathway, um, training one another in the Shema lifestyle, coming from Deuteronomy 6, which is also the greatest commandment, loving God and loving people. But a Shema lifestyle, that is just in reference to intentional statements and actions Actions and words coming together to display Jesus. They give a glimpse of the reality of who God is and how he desires to draw us to him. If you read in Deuteronomy 6, it's uh, the Jewish boy asking his father, Father, why do we do this? And why do we write these things on our doorposts? And then the father is able to give him uh, stories and histories about who God is is. In the same way, when you serve other people, when you're good news to them, when you bless them and have a Shema lifestyle and self-sacrificial love, you're able to tell them stories about God. Amen, guys? Consistently pointing to God in culturally appropriate ways. Maybe it's prayer, maybe it's kind deeds, maybe it's community service, and that's a Shema lifestyle. There's the thing, when you try your hand at kingdom life, when you live it out, Sometimes we end a discovery Bible study with how can you live this out? That's Shema lifestyle right there. You'll have plenty of opportunities to share different aspects of Christ with people. The difference is that instead of having to pursue people, people are going to be pursuing you. They're going to be drawn to a kingdom lifestyle with curiosity and openness. Quick example, we got the Redmond Food Project. I got about 10 neighbors signed up. They're awesome. They're like, yeah, I want to give food to the local food bank. But I also have, I've had two of them, uh, Colleen and Roger, knocking on my door. Hey, when is the next food bank collection and how can I get involved more? I don't have neighbors knocking on my door for other reasons, maybe sometimes for a complaint or something. But because I'm simply building community and sharing food through that nonprofit, they're knocking on my door for part of that community change because I think they see a tangible manifestation of the kingdom and they don't even know it yet. Quick example. And even in that, that's something every person in this room can do. When people see that, it's seeing an attractional lifestyle rather than coming to an attractional church service. And when we're a church this size, we got to lean into that attractional, transformed by Jesus, self-sacrificial, loving lifestyle to display the kingdom of God more than an attractional church service displaying the kingdom of God. Even though I think we have awesome church services and we do come before the presence of God and it is a sacred assembly and it is awesome. But here's the thing, that lifestyle doesn't come from one Sunday or one service. It doesn't come from one sermon. And it doesn't come from a one-time training or even going through the disciple-maker's pathway. That doesn't create the Shema lifestyle. That doesn't create blessed rhythms by which we pray for others and listen to others and eat with others and serve others and show their story to others. It doesn't cultivate a compassionate shepherding heart of the Father. 
a lifestyle takes ongoing discipleship. And that's my shameless plug for the discipleship call that we're starting up Sunday evenings. Take advantage of that. Maybe it's not in the season of life. Maybe you're working nights like Veronica right now, but take advantage of that. I was on the phone with, um, I was about to say Brian Daly, Brian Shirley recently, who taught us the life languages. And I said, you know, I think some of the training and equipping is a little bit too much of the shaper language and a little bit too much of the mover language. And he said, no, he's been through the pathway three times now. And he thinks, no, this is totally shepherd. This is the heart of God and posturing yourself after him. And I can't get enough of it. And that's what we do on these Sunday night calls. Tonight we're talking about incarnational mission and just a deeper dive of posturing ourselves after Jesus. Last plug I'll give is just upcoming guests. We got Scott Davis talking about House of Prayer and his wife will be on there. Um, we're going to have Brock and Ann Robbie talking about relationships, and they lead a bunch of uh, house church couples, and they were at the Medford Marriage Retreat speaking two years ago, so I think you've heard from them. Um, they're going to be talking about how marrieds can seek discipleship in their life. We're going to have Reese Nayland on soon talking about the Renew Network, and um, we've been teaching real-life theology from the Renew Network, so we should probably hear a bit more about it. I hope we take advantage of these opportunities Yes, guest speakers and training, but it's also how can we posture ourselves after Jesus this week, practical discipleship. Last week was awesome. We were on there. We talked about, hey, how can we multiply fasting before we ever think of multiplying disciples? And how can we pass the ball back to God rather than us hogging the ball and maintaining control here? So a bunch of us on the call, we dedicated to fasting, and then they took it into the Brothers Midweek in Eugene, and they're all going through the pathway, and they're all fasting, and some of us here were fasting last week, and in my whole walk as a disciple, I've never seen more disciples fasting and posturing themselves after Jesus and passing the ball back to him and giving him control and giving him the glory, and that's just discipleship and helping one another to have this lifestyle because, guys, it's tough to be self-sacrificial. Amen? When Jesus told us to live out the Sermon on the Mount and display the kingdom, he said, teach them to obey and disciple them with this, because they are going to need help in that walk. So question, would you be willing to pursue and seek first the kingdom and pursue kingdom greatness the way Jesus tells us to pursue kingdom greatness? greatness. And here's our ending verse on kingdom greatness. It's what Jesus considers greatness. Could I get one more volunteer to read for us? Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 through 28. It's kingdom greatness. <laughs> That's Jesus coming to serve. I think the verse speaks for itself. Matthew chapter 20, 25 through 28. But when you come and serve, towel around your waist. When you seek to be last rather than first, that witnesses the gospel, that brings tangible slices of heaven down to earth, that manifests the kingdom of God. To conclude, I'm just going to connect this back into mission, and we'll end out here. Because when you continue to do this, those they're reaching out to, they're going to start to acknowledge 
you are good news in my life. Sometimes we think, like, I'm pretty good news to this person. <laughs> but are they telling you that you are good news in their life? If you're truly living good news, you'll have plenty of opportunities to explain first principles or to tell them about the gospel, like I said earlier. But if you continue to lead off with words rather than Jesus posturing, if you continue to lead off with words rather than acts of the gospel or acts of the Holy Spirit, you'll continue to shortchange people. And like we said last Sunday, they'll expect a supernatural love to be found in the church and then they'll be disappointed and disillusioned when they don't find it. If Jesus' kingdom mission is going to come, we're going to have to live the kingdom life together. And not alone, but together. And that means actively moving into the city, to the culture, to embody and enflesh the good news into every nook and cranny of Bend, Oregon and Redmond, Oregon. I'll save more of that for the coaching call later tonight. But for you as an individual, maybe not even with this community, it means saying, God can use me to love others. Because when you say God can't use me, I can't do that, it's saying God can't do that. God can't work through me. It's practical atheism. It's saying that, you know, God can't do what he says he will do. And the things God commands me to do, he's not going to supply me with the power to do them. And here's your missional loving practical to get over that. Jesus said you do even greater things than him, but you got to believe that. You have to believe that Jesus as the good father is aching to show people his love and needs you to show it to him, to them. So what is the shepherd's voice calling you into? Tangibly to express his kingdom in loving self-sacrifice. Because we have this on our church banners. Committed to Jesus' kingdom mission. So how is Jesus calling you to posture yourself in that? to make that tangible to people. Function of the church is to be God's missionary hand to a world that is looking for something tangible to grab onto, guys. Not just hear about God, but grab onto and experience him. It's not that this church perhaps should undertake a mission, but the mission of God constitutes this church being here in the first place. The church exists for mission and glorifying God as fire exists for burning. So if you have a fear in engaging in the mission or living this kingdom life, it comes back to a deficit of love and you got to keep it about love. If we fear mission, we have a deficit of love. If you fear community, you have a deficit of love. If you fear worship and offering your body as a living sacrifice, you have a deficit of love because perfect love drives out fear. And go back three sermons ago when we talked about beholding the beauty of God and how much he dearly loves us to motivate all of this. But here's a great practical for you to have a quiet time on. Love and mission are almost synonyms. They're not synonyms, but they're almost synonyms. And you can go through your Bible and the more you treat them as synonyms, the better off your mission will be. 
So stay with me. You could almost every time you see the word love in the New Testament, simply replace it with the word mission and you'll begin to understand what mission is and you'll begin to posture yourself more accurately to Jesus. So you'll see things like mission is patient, mission is kind, mission does not boast, mission keeps no record of wrongs. If I have not mission, it profits nothing. We do mission because mission was first done to us. Mission is from God, and everyone who does mission is born of God and knows God. For God had a mission to the world, and so he gave his only begotten son. This is how we know what mission is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for his friends. Book of Isaiah says the kingdom is going to come through a suffering servant, and that's Jesus Christ. It says that he'll establish this kingdom same thing today, the kingdom of God is revealed through sacrificial love. So guys, us together, I, I stopped telling people, yeah, we're a house church, we're a mission team, and I tell people we're a family of missionary servants seeking to make disciples, make disciples, posture themselves after Jesus. Being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, committed to Jesus' kingdom mission. A family of missionary servants. We got to live that and not just tell people that that's what we are. That's the family we want to welcome people into. And that's the family we get to welcome Chris into today. He's being restored and he's going to share with us in a moment uh, to share about how he is reconnecting with God and restoring to God. And I'll let him tell his own story and then take us into prayer and communion and our final song. Thank you, guys.